a Korean air cargo crashes briefly after taking off out of Shanghai. What caused this flight to crash so soon after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. Hello. Life is chaos. We do have a new patron. We had a new patron we today. Did. We got a new patron today. Please hold. Holding. Also, I want to apologize in realizing that we share way too much about ourselves in the post episode. Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I just realized that because it's something someone's just sent us, and I was like, wow, maybe I shouldn't share so much about myself. <laughs> it's fine. Everything's fine. We share everything. If it's a TMI, I, I'm, I fully apologize for it. Thank you to our new patron, Justin. Thanks. All right. Other stuff. Ducks. Ducks. We got another ducks to order. Several, yeah, several people have ordered ducks. Yep. We will get you ducks yep. eventually. S- stories. We've gotten a few more stories. We'll probably be close to ready to record a new one soon. Thanks. But still keep sending Andrew, stories. Andrew, but yes, keep sending stories. <laughs> Thanks, Andrew. Andrew. Yes. What is February's theme, I guess, if we're going back to themes anytime soon? <laughs> uh, like, you know, like love stories and stuff. Sure. Because it's Valentine's Day. Love of aviation counts as a love story. Sure. Yes. Why not? Love of anything counts as a love story. Sure, why not? It doesn't have to be another person. can't be uh Love for my stubborn, violent cat. Yes. Ma'am. We did determine that Vi, our beloved drama queen of a cat, is now short for violence. Yes, she is violence. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. We have a couple listener questions. Yeah. It's good because we got to fill time because this episode is going to be short. short. <laughs> so there you go. This is also your warning. This is a short episode if you couldn't figure it out by the timestamp. Yes. So. You know the last time we said that it was not a short episode? <laughs> this one's going to be. You are correct. <laughs> this one's going to be short. considering how long your and Nick's notes are. Oh my God. It's going to be short. Yeah. Oh, you're here now. Damn it. This also might be one of the single stupidest reasons for a crash. So prepared for me to get mad? You might get mad. I don't even know if mad's the right word. Just like, did Disa- you... Disappointed. Did, <laughs> disappointed. That I'm not is angry. Sure, I'm yeah. not mad. I'm just I'm just disappointed. Okay. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Korean Air Cargo Flight 6316. Thank you to Kenneth for recommending this. You might realize this is a week earlier than you expected this episode. Yep. Listen, so... We've had this one flight that we've been moving around our schedule because it never seems like the right time to cover MH17. Yes. Also, it is kind of difficult because I don't think there's an official report. There is. Okay. Well, regardless, it's it keeps getting moved for an obvious reason. So if you know anything about MH17, you know why it's getting moved. We'll do it eventually. When it's not so contentious. We just don't feel... I don't know when that's going to be, though, because yeah. we had this at about the same time last year. We were like, yeah, no. We're like, yeah, it'll be like a month, right? Yeah, so uh, maybe the next time it comes around, we'll actually do it. Or not. Or not. We'll see. I think so I put it in, first. like, April? Of next year? Uh-huh. Okay. So okay. the very end and end of the list. The, the, the past our current list list okay got it okay if this conflict is not resolved by then we got bigger problems i mean i'd be surprised if it was to be honest (sighs) anyways so this next korean airlines korean airlines flight 63 16 yes this is a cargo flight obviously because it's korean air cargo this accident occurred on april 15th of 1999 this is a hot topic but we'll talk about this later around that time for korean air was a hot topic. Anyways, 
This is McDonnell Douglas MD-11F for freighter. Freighter, yep. Yep, this is the freight version. This was actually originally delivered to Korean Air as a passenger version of the MD-11, and they then retrofitted it sometime um, in the seven years that they had owned it up to this point. I know FedEx is retiring their MD-11s. Slowly. Them and UPS. They are both they, still have them. Are they the last? No. There's still quite a few MD-11s in cargo operations around the world. But the problem is that FedEx and UPS still have a lot of them. They just got rid of the DC-10, which was the originator airplane mm-hmm. for the MD-11. Which, by the way, if anyone's listened to FedEx Flight 705 lately, and we said on that episode that aircraft is still flying. It's that, not anymore. That is now a lie. Yep. That finally yeah, retired. Yeah, it has been retired. Yeah. Yep, they finally retired it. Anyways, this one has a tail number, Hotel Lima-7373. Yay. I guess it's pretty easy to remember. It's Korean tail numbers. Woo. This is a flight from Shanghai's Hongqiao Airport in China, obviously, right. to Seoul, South Korea. Gimpo. At the time, this was Gimpo because they didn't have Incheon yet. It didn't exist. So this was only to Gimpo. So in the report, they just listed it as flying to Seoul since there was only one airport at the time. So Shanghai has two major airports, which is why they clarified in this, much like Seoul does now. Shanghai has for a long time. This is the one that's closer to downtown Okay. in Shanghai. But the larger one is Pudong, which is much, much larger these days, although both are pretty large airports. The captain for this flight was Hong Sung Sil. He was 54 years old. At the time, he had 12,898 hours total, of which 4,856 hours were on the MD-11. So pretty experienced yeah. overall and on the aircraft. First officer was Park Bon Suk. He was... 35 years old at the time. He had 1,826 hours total, <laughs> of which 1,152 were on the MD-11, so... Okay, then. He had a whopping 700 hours, not not even 700 hours. It shows. Yes. So. I had a feeling this would... <laughs> <laughs> when I said you would be disappointed, I, I'm sorry, did you think I meant anyone other than the flight crew? No. But also, when you brought up that about how this country is different, I went, it's an hours problem. That might not be the no, thing. No, right. so. that is not. It's even more basic than that. <laughs> okay, then. This flight apparently has a flight engineer. I'm not entirely sure if they were actually an active flight engineer or if they were. I couldn't determine because the report called them like an operations engineer for the airline or something like that. And then in Wikipedia, it said it was a flight engineer. There's no hours for this person. They're not on the CVR. Right. And I don't think they're actually part of the flight crew. I think they're... Must be like a maintenance engineer? That's what I think they or are. Or a loadmaster? Right. That's what I think they are. They're one of those things. Because the MD-11 throughout most of its history hasn't needed a flight engineer. So, like, it just... So, role undetermined? Right. Anyways, this person was Park byung Keep. He was 48 years old. Okay. That's what I know. Okay. That was the third person on board out of three. That's it, because it's cargo. Okay. Also, if you know anything about Shanghai and Seoul, they're not very far apart. So the flight is not very long. It's about two hours, I think. So at Shanghai, 86 tons of cargo was loaded. Pretty decent amount of cargo. Yep. With the aircraft prepared, they taxied to and departed from runway 18 at Shanghai Hongqiao Airport at 4.01 p.m. and 35 seconds local time. The autopilot was immediately activated after takeoff. They are allowed to do that at 400 feet. Yes. The autopilot was then deactivated one minute and seven seconds after takeoff. Great. We'll talk about why later. The aircraft turned slightly to the right, then flew level for a moment on a heading of 200 degrees for about 30 seconds before turning back to the left slightly. 
The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to 1,500 meters or 4,900 feet as the aircraft was climbing through 900 meters or 3,000 feet. 4.04 p.m. and 19 seconds as the aircraft reached 1,370 meters, the aircraft suddenly entered a rapid descent. Like, just suddenly nosed over and began heading for the ground. Okay. Just moments later, the aircraft disappeared from the air traffic controller's radar. I mean, it went crash. Yep. This is just exactly how fast this went. Mm -hmm. The aircraft crashed into the ground at 4.04 p.m. and 35 seconds, just 11.6 kilometers from the runway. So not very far. They had not gone far. Okay. The aircraft crashed into an industrial area of the Xinjuan, Xinjuan district in Shanghai. Okay. The aircraft disintegrated on impact, causing a large explosion. As a matter of fact, this explosion was registered on a nearby earthquake sensor, registering as an equivalent of a 1.6 magnitude earthquake. Oh, that's nice. Yep. All three crew perished in the accident because they had... Hit the ground hit hard. The ground. Yeah. We'll talk about just how hard here in a little bit. Additionally, five people on the ground perished when they were, you know, hit. Yeah. And another 42 were injured. So it did some damage on the ground. The aircraft, I mean, it, it hit the ground hard. And fast. Uh, all of this happened very, very quickly. They were only in the sky for a few minutes. So, I mean, four minutes. They were in the sky for four minutes. Wow. Okay. Well, this investigation was performed by the Civil Aviation Administration of China, or the CAAC, with the assistance of... The NTSB. As the state of manufacture. Yep. And they actually provide the rabbit holes in this report, the rabbit holes they went down, which will make for a much more interesting script because this one, as a Monday night quarterback, was kind of dumb. And it's simple once they figured it out. Yep. Both black boxes and the quick access recorder were found and sent to the NTSB recorder lab in Washington, D.C. They were able to retrieve the contents of the CVR, but despite six months of effort, no usable data was retrieved from either the FDR or the QAR, which really sucks. It does suck, actually, because it would have been really nice to have. They pieced together a lot of the times and things that I reported from outside information. From radar, CVR. Right. ATC. Right. Because they didn't have the data from the FDR QAR, a lot of information regarding the aircraft configuration, control surfaces, etc. had to be determined from impact marks on the wreckage, otherwise known as witness marks. Let's take a quick look at that wreckage. The ground scars helped investigators determine that the angle of impact was between 20 and 40 degrees, and they found some of the instruments frozen at their values at the time of impact, and the airspeed indicator said that they impacted at 398 knots. That is fast! That is fast. Yeah. That is insanely really fast. Fa We're talking over 400 miles an hour. Yeah. That's that's fast. In four minutes, they managed to somehow get 400 miles an hour worth of speed. We'll talk about how that happened in a moment. Investigators wondered if the elevators may have jammed, much like Alaska Airlines Flight 261, reference Miranda Sode 1. This is me pitching that. If you want to listen to it, please join Patreon, at least the first class level. Yes. And then you can listen to all of our Miranda notes. So, because they suspected the elevators, they examined them in the wreckage and found that the elevators were symmetrically deflected and neither was fully deflected up or down. Furthermore, they were climbing at the time, so if they were to get jammed, they likely would have been jammed in the nose-up position, not nose-down. Correct. And the impact angle would have been more like 70 to 90 degrees if they had jammed in the down position. That is not a... Small number. So it is unlikely that the elevators were jammed. Although witnesses reported that the plane crashed near wings level, investigators wanted to check for sure, and they found indeed that the ailerons reflected the witness reports as they were not deflected at all. Yep. There was no evidence of any malfunction of the aircraft structures or control surfaces. 
or the engines, or a whole slew of other things. Investigators then check the weight and balance values. This is not the first or even the second cargo crash immediately after takeoff that we have covered. Please refer to Flight 102 in Episode 32, as well as the Japan Airlines flight we covered in the last couple months. Yep. With the cattle. Yep. That one. Unfortunately, a relatively regular problem (laughs) at the time, it seemed. So, weight and balance is a good place to check. Just off the bat. But weight and balance values were within aircraft limits. (sighs) Yep. Was weather a factor? We know that microbursts have been known to bring down aircraft at low altitudes. Nope, there was no abnormal weather activity in the vicinity of Shanghai. Okay. Let's just cut to the chase. Let's delve into pilot error. What may have been different about this flight compared to others that the flight crew had performed without issue? Fun factoid. At the time, there were three countries that were not in compliance with the ICAO and issued clearances in meters. Yep. And those three countries were Russia, North Korea, and China. Pretty much to be expected. Did you figure out the problem? I did. Soviet? They issue their altitude clearances in meters. Oh, no. They f***ed up the thing. Okay, can I leave now? Is that it? That's about up. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. They screwed up the freaking... Yep. That's like... Oh. Because China decides to do the meters thing, which they don't anymore. Okay, let me get a little more detailed. Yes. Even though we all figured it out at this point. Korean Airlines actually anticipated issues with having altitude clearances and meters and created a specific training video just for this feet to meter and meter to feet issue. And the last time that the captain saw this video was on his first flight to Shanghai, which was just three months prior. And the first time the first officer saw it was the day of the accident. That's nice. Neither had a lot of experience flying in China, you might have figured out. I wish I could draw this out to be a longer, more intricate story, but there's no better way to convey this, honestly. Right. The CBR illustrated that throughout the short flight, the flight crew kept switching between meters and feet in regards to their altitude clearances, confusing themselves more than once. When the first officer read back the departure clearance, he read Squawk 6316 after takeoff, turn left to November Hotel Whiskey, initially 900 meters. And the captain said, 900 meters? Isn't that a thousand feet? No, it's 3,000. A minute later, he said, is it 900 meters? To which the first officer responded, yeah, 900 feet. We don't need this, and it is a radar vector. You may go to November Hotel Whiskey just right after takeoff. They didn't give me a SID. So the captain literally asked, is it 900 meters? And the first officer, yes, 900 feet. feet. What? Yeah, you can see why there's a problem. So let's discuss their actions after takeoff, because we're set up real great here. Yep. After establishing positive climb and raising the gear, air traffic control said Korean Air 6316 contact Shanghai Tower 118 correction contact Shanghai departure 119075 good day. The captain asked left turn direct where? While the first officer was responding to air traffic control 10930 uh 0511119105 Korean Air 66316 <laughs> What? Would you a, like to run that by I me? I think there again? was a glitch in his matrix. <laughs> What? That just sounded like numbers. That, that robot just had a malfunction. I had trouble writing that down, by the way. I was like, what did he say? <laughs> also, same. What the f***? Yeah. How, how did ATC respond <laughs> that? So, hold on. The captain said, why this do not turn? English. English. Good English. Why, so. why you no turn? Why no turn? Why I, no turn? Why no turn? Why turn now? He was referring to something unidentified in the cockpit while air traffic control responded negative 119075. The sound of the autopilot disconnecting was heard, which the crew did intentionally when the aircraft did not respond as expected to whatever input they had put. 
which we don't know because we don't have the FDR. Right. The captain asked, did you engage direct? And the first officer said yes, meaning the first officer may have entered in an improper waypoint, which they weren't supposed to do yet. Right. Air traffic control then instructed them to turn left direct to November Hotel Whiskey and climb and maintain 1,500 meters. At this point, the central oral warning system, or cause, alerted them by saying altitude, which it did because they came within 1,000 feet of their pre-selected altitude of 900 meters or 3,000 feet. The first officer responded to air traffic control and said, okay, direct Hotel November, November Hotel Whiskey, and say again altitude? Shortly after, he said to the captain, why this not work? And the captain said, make it turn. It doesn't turn. Something's wrong with this airplane today. Investigators weren't 100% sure what they were referring to, but it could have been, one, the first officer entering something into the flight management system, which made the aircraft turn right. Two, they didn't engage the right mode on the flight management system. Three, there was a malfunction with the heading control. Or four, there was something wrong with the heading selection knob. Why no turn? I don't know. Are you talking about the aircraft or a knob? Right. Why you? Why no turn? Why, why no you turn? no turn? Why no turn? Right. What? <laughs> so, so the first officer said, okay, let's turn. Okay. okay. I still don't know what they're talking about. No one really does. No. Nope. Air traffic control relayed back, Korean Air 6316, climb and maintain 1,500 meters. The captain says, I don't see. Where? Which the investigators take to mean he couldn't see the November Hotel Whiskey Beacon Waypoint? Okay. I don't know why he would see it. Right. On his side, and was asking the first officer if he saw it, to which the first officer responded, yes, here, keep turning left, keep turning left. But you might have noticed he didn't respond to the altitude clearance from air traffic control. Right. And they're still drifting to the right, even though he's asking them to turn left. The captain said, 3,000 foot hold, which radar reflects they did, and then they raised the flaps. Air traffic control repeated the climb and maintain 1,500 meters instruction, which the first officer finally read back. Air traffic control repeated the instruction to turn left to November Hotel Whiskey because they were still turning right, and the first officer read back the instruction. At this point, the first officer reminded the captain to raise the slats, so they did that, and they are now at 970 meters or 3,200 feet. The captain made a comment, well, what's wrong with this airplane today? And then said, uh-oh, look at this. And the first officer said, oh. At this point, two sounds of altitude were heard from the cause, indicating that they were experiencing an excessive climb rate. So the first officer said, pitch, sir. And the captain responded, how far did they tell us to climb? The first officer said, 1,500 feet. Did you catch the problem there? The captain said, ah, ah, woo. Investigators didn't say what he meant by that, and I don't know what he meant by that. I don't know if it was supposed to be something in Korean. Okay. Or that they need a wee-woo wagon. (laughs) They in trouble. I don't know. They in trouble. But the first officer once again responded, 1,500 feet. The investigator's comment on that was, the first officer was totally wrong about the altitude. That is what they wrote. Totally 100%. wrong. 100%. <laughs> totally wrong. He they said, said totally wrong. 1,500 in feet. They're supposed to be at 3,000 feet. Well, they're actually they're cleared to, to like 4,900 feet. Right. They're cleared to 1,500 meters, which is like 4,900 feet. So We're all sorts they're of whacked out. Rude. You, you know why there's confusion now. So the first officer said, why isn't it working? Wait, wait, wait. And investigators thought he might be referring to the throttles because the captain said, throttle, throttle, throttle. And investigators suspect he had pushed down the control column forward to initiate a rapid descent down to 1,500 feet, going from a climb to an extreme descent. And the throttles were still at climb power. So now they are accelerating to the ground. So the captain asked that the throttles be reduced. The captain said, just a moment, just a moment, which investigators took to mean the first officer also began pushing the control column down, which was too harsh and excessive. 
They had reached a peak of 4,500 feet or 1,370 meters before their descent had began. The CVR picked up the sound of the trim in motion tone from cause, meaning that the crew used the nose down stabilizer trim. Things were rattling in the cockpit due to the violent attitude change, and the first officer said, wait, wait, pitch, to which the captain, I you not, said, yeah, 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 that many. Yep. Okay, okay, so let me get this straight. Mm-hmm. They're now plummeting towards the ground. Yes, yep. but my brain's like trying to process this. So they had an excessive climb rate. Yep. So they were in close to stall territory. Not quite. Not necessarily. I mean, the stick shaker didn't go off. No, no. The airplane was just climbing above what a normal aircraft would climb. So they pushed it over? Yep. Because they were at 4,500 feet and were like, oh, sh- we're supposed to be down at 1,500. Which that's what, were. that's not true. And that, but that's what they thought. But even if that were true, why would you try to get down there as fast as possible? Well, they're concerned that they might be in airspace where other aircraft are flying. Yes, but ATC will probably tell them, hey, yo, there's usually. aircraft there if if that's a pro And also yes. there's like TCAS. Yeah. Usually. This is 1999. Like, Yeah, TCAS probably, well, TCAS would have been there, but who knows? It might not have been super great where they were. But, but I it feel doesn't like- really matter because even then, yes, the air traffic controller would have caught it had that been an actual problem. But also- Okay, Why would you only be clear to 1,500 feet? That is so low. Right. Well, clearly they're not using their big wrinkle brains, right? They're using their smooth brains. <laughs> yes. Also, though, like, I to be fair, I don't know how radar was back in 1999. I don't know how fast it refreshed. Would they be able to see the altitude? Like, I feel like... They, oh, they were at 45, and then they, they dropped dramatically? They like, could. I feel like, they actually, not saying that this is an ATC problem, because right. it's definitely not, but they I'm definitely, just wondering if they would have caught they it. They cleared the ATC of any wrongdoing, of course, because it wasn't their fault. And they I'm definitely, just wondering if they would have caught it. They had more than primary radar, because a lot of data came from secondary radar. Yes. Okay. Do you talk about just how fast they descended? Because I know how fast they descended. I said 398 knots. Not the speed. Oh, the feet per minute? Yeah. They figured this out from radar data, which is why I know they had radar data. They were descending at 34,000 feet per minute, which is one of the highest amounts we've ever talked about on this podcast. They were descending at 10,000 meters per minute. Not long after the, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't think that's the right number of you. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's eight yes. Yeah. <laughs> Not long after that, the first officer said, nose up, nose up, nose up. And the captain said, ah? I don't know with what intonation he said, ah? Ah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> ah! <laughs> Not realizing they had descended so quickly, and he didn't know why the first officer wanted him to pull up. That was until they heard, terrain, terrain. Pull up. <laughs> and the first officer continued saying, nose up, nose up, nose up, while the ground proximity warning system said, whoop, whoop, pull up, whoop, whoop, pull up, before the recording ended. And that's all I got. To me, duh. <laughs> I don't know. I You're staring at the ground. I mean, they were straight down. Well, the what, airplane went. What time of day was in. it? Mm-mm. This was daytime. This was four p.m. So uh, my point being is like they had plenty of sunlight, right? Like they they yes. see and it the is ground. it oh, is definitely. worth saying they did not just nose into the ground. They, I think they were trying to pull up because they landed at the last moment. They tried to pull up. They landed wings level. But yeah, they but were, it's a big bird. Right. And you gotta, they were descending so quickly. The, was, Im- the impact angle was 20 to 40 degrees. Right. That does not mean their pitch. Was but because bad. at one point they were basically pointing straight down. Yeah. Which they must have been disoriented 
to not they have had noticed to this. To not have noticed this and be descending at 34,000 feet it's just per minute. interesting to me because usually when we talk about spatial disorientation, right, we talk about it's dark outside and they can't see the horizon, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But that wouldn't be the case here because there should be some sunlight at least. The only thing I can think is two things. One, pollution. Two, clouds. Mm. Any of those things can have, uh, you know, you only have to go up a thousand feet to not be able to see, basically. So that could be the case. But regardless, and investigators at some point, didn't talk about it. This was a really short analysis. Uh, everything about this was so short. They were pointed straight down at one point, which is why they gained so much speed, even though they managed to pull basically out of that. It was too late for the airplane to actually recover. My my next thing, and it's kind of interesting that they didn't realize this, but they were like in panic mode, I guess. So mm-hmm. you know, but if they had gone above. The altitude they were supposed to be at, right? right? So if they had gone above the 1,500 feet, if that's what they thought it was, right? ATC would have been like, yo, what the hell are you doing? Usually, yes. There's you like can't other necessarily traffic. rely on them, but yes. No, but I'm saying like if there's other traffic above you- If they had above been you, that far above their altitude, yes, yeah. probably. If, if they thought they were so far above the altitude, they, they were, what, 4,500 4, feet, something like that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they thought they had to be 3,000 feet feet lower. lower. Like, I would feel like at that point, ATC would be like, whoa, what are you doing? Another factor here, I'm not sure how often commercial flight crews do this, but I know like Brendan does it, Mm -hmm. where you write down your clearances. Yeah. You write down your ATIS, you write down everything. Oh, yeah. So I wonder what the first officer may have written down. Right. Don't know. Won't know. So Can't know. My other question, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Is, are the crew used to being in feet? Yes. yes. And China. So China, Russia, and North, and North Korea, Korea were the only ones that meters. at the time were in meters. Now it's only pretty much North Korea. <laughs> and no one flies to North Korea, so. No. Or out of North Korea. Right. Air Corio. one person. Yeah, Air Corio. Well, there's an airline. They fly to China, and that's it. So they do both, but those pilots are specially trained by North Korea, so. But my, my point being is, like, the airplane tells you feet. Yes. Yep. If you're cleared for meters and you don't know the conversion for mm-hmm. feet, I mean, I can see how it would get pretty confusing. Yep, yep. Although that's the problem is like the captain was like 900 meters and the first officer was like 900 feet. Yeah. Like, hold on. Also, why did the captain not say anything? Like, right. No, yeah, literally I just said, taking that course I said that day. meters. Yeah, I was like, hold on. 900, you, you just said one unit. The first officer said the other unit. Right. I. Couldn't tell you. <laughs> you're, you're, yeah, you're just as confused as everybody else was. I told Miranda thing. earlier that a ninth grader would be able to figure this one out, and I'm sad to say I think that's an accurate assessment. I mean, pretty much. I don't know. Some of the ninth graders I know wouldn't be able to do that conversion, so. But I, I added a couple grades to that. I would have said a sixth grader, but. Kind of the, oh, my sixth graders definitely wouldn't be able to do that. But kind of the whole thing to that is. Like, you're going to fly into China, you need to, that is like, that should have been key thing. They're going in to In your us- mind, they're going, everything's going to be in meters while you are there. That is a key thing. <laughs> like, meters. You have to know it, because it's going to be there. That's it. I so. I mean, I can understand how they got confused, but like, yeah. I don't understand the whole. I don't understand how that kind of confusion caused such a devastating accident. How it was allowed to cause such a devastating accident. I don't know how they did. Yeah, I don't know. Well, but that was only on the on the case of the first officer, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, the captain was experienced and had flown into China before at least once. So my my question would be, right? Like, even if they were confused about the metrics, right? The units being used. Mm -hmm. Why 
was it like 1,500 feet, like you said earlier? Why did that not seem weird to them? Right. That it would be 1,500 feet. I mean, I guess if you're in China, then what do you know about what they're trying to do? But, but that's still really low for yes, an airliner so lie. Especially when you take off out of the middle of Shanghai, where they probably have buildings taller than that. Yeah. It, <laughs> I just, that was like the big thing to me. Like, I understand the freak out, like, oh, we went too high, but I don't understand how. Why like, you thought 1,500 feet was a logical clearance. Right. Yeah. And like, why didn't you just, again, ask ATC? I realized that they had just asked ATC. But also ask again, like there's nothing wrong yeah. with being like, hey, we're confused. We're going to this, f- like they should have said feet and they would have said meters. Like, I don't know. I you know, know what I mean? Right. To be fair, Monday morning quarterback, right? Like, yeah, I exactly could totally understand. I wasn't in the cockpit. We also don't know what else they were trying to do because they can't turn something. It wasn't right. turning. Either the plane <laughs> or Why not. Why no turn? I don't understand. The yeah. What are you what talking no about? Turn? So they were probably preoccupied with other things too. They definitely were preoccupied with Just the altitude. So yes, but it just is amazing to me that they're like, yes, and we need to descend immediately. Like instead of like gradually descending and being like, I don't know what was going through their heads. I don't know that we will ever know what's going through their heads. No, probably not. It's it just is. It just is. So let's take a break. We want to take a break, and then we'll do the second half. Woo! Break, break. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay, we're back. We're back. Let's do the normal things. There were quite a few findings. I don't do all of them, of course, but I do the ones I felt were important. There's 20 of them to be exact, but I don't do all of those. They found that there was no evidence of pre-impact explosions or sabotage. Ta-da! By the way, I'm going to go through some of the rabbit holes we... Didn't go through. Didn't go through as well as the ones we did, just to be like, yeah, they really did look into all this stuff. Found that the air traffic controllers handling the accident flight were not causal to this accident. Oh, crap. Huh. What? This investigation was performed by the Civil Aviation Administration of China, along with forwarding the notification to the ICAO, the NTSB, the Korean Civil Aviation Bureau, or KCAB, Mm -hmm. as well as the East China Administration. All the different... China everything, I'm sure. The joint investigative team received technical support from the KCAB, the NTSB, the FAA, Boeing, Pratt & Whitney, Korean Air, and the other component manufacturers. Yep. Wasn't just the NTSB. I'm sorry. I skipped a page. Hot topic, actually, that Boeing was involved and not McDonnell Douglas, because this would have been just after Boeing bought McDonnell Douglas. Yikes. Just. Ew. So this was Boeing's territory barely. Messy. At the time. Anyways. Sorry, I interrupted, but I wanted to get that out. Okay. They found that the cargo loading and weight and balance were within the airplane's limitations and Korean Airlines operating practices. There's not enough room for the cargo to shift. So everything was packed in nice and tight. They couldn't move. They found that all of the engines worked properly during the accident flight. There was no problem with the engines. They found that based on all the available evidence, it appears that the hydraulic systems functioned normally during the accident flight, i.e. all of the control surfaces worked normally. 
They found that the captain didn't provide a takeoff briefing before departure, so the crew was not well prepared for confusing or unexpected situations. Therefore, the crew couldn't react in a timely manner when they felt confusion or experienced unexpected situations, which they did a lot of, including primarily whatever they entered into their flight management system did not take because they tried to activate the autopilot and they expected it to fly one way and then it went the other and they were like what the heck is going on it no turn <laughs> it no turn why no turn why it no turn why it no turn <laughs> why it turn no i'm sorry it's the bad english that's funny yes so they immediately i mean the, the, the autopilot deactivated after a series of things is happening but all of that to say like this was all, all caused confusion they weren't going in the right direction they didn't have any idea about altitudes they hadn't discussed this yeah because the captain hadn't done a briefing which is part of crew resource management yep so we can feel a theme starting. I found that the flight crew's comments during the initial portion of the flight regarding heading and the need to turn towards the first navigational fix did not specify that sort of difficulties or confusion the flight crew was actually experiencing. So they didn't go through what was actually like it, it, it exemplified how badly they were confused because yeah. they didn't like they were so focused on some things that ultimately maybe weren't as important. <laughs> They found that the flight crew comments during the initial portion of the flight regarding their heading and the need to turn left were consistent with the crew that thought that they had programmed the aircraft's auto flight system to do something, and the aircraft subsequently did not respond as expected. These unexpected responses typically resulted from inadvertent or erroneous flight crew inputs. Later in the flight, prior to the transition from rapid climb to rapid descent, both pilots appeared to acknowledge that the source of their heading confusion had been resolved. Mm. Basically... What they thought was happening with all the heading left no, and right, no turn. this and yeah. that, at the moment where they tipped over tipped over was the moment they also thought, no, we're going in the right direction. Okay, it's too Except late. we're going down. Yeah. <laughs> but now we're pointing at the ground. It's too late. That doesn't matter anymore. As a matter of fact, that didn't matter in the first place. Nope. They found that the crew was confused before and during the flight by the altitude clearances, and they continuously expressed difficulty in understanding if the altitude assignments were in feet or in meters. I don't. While they were confused by it, I don't think there was anything that was unclear about it. Yeah. When air traffic control told them in meters and the captain had said in meters and they had been trained for this flight into China in meters. To me, there wasn't any confusion to be had other than you're used to operating in feet. You got to take your mind away from that. And that should have been a point. Well, the other part of it, too, is the airplanes in feet. Right. right. So you have to make sure you do some quick math. Sure, figure out where you're supposed to be specifically. Of course, of course. But still, this shouldn't have been that confusing. <laughs> no, you are correct. They found that the captain abruptly pushed the control column forward after he received further, but mistaken, confirmation from the first officer that their clearance altitude was 1,500 feet instead of 1,500 meters. This confirmation came while the airplane was in a rapid climb and nearing 1,500 meters. <laughs> Or 4,900 feet. The abrupt control inputs resulted from the captain's mistaken belief that he was 3,000 feet higher than their air traffic control clearance. That doesn't mean you should descend at 34,000 feet per minute. <laughs> it doesn't? I, yeah. No, yeah. I don't understand why they were like, at the down! Right. We have to go down immediately, down! Like, right. why can't you just, like, if you thought it was a mistake... Right. Which now happens. let's correct it, but let's correct it at a relatively gradual, normal, yeah, a normal rate of step descent. Down, instead of going, down, right. now. Okay, right, like, got it. 1,500 feet per minute. Okay, great. Let's go back down normally. But yep. 34,000 feet per minute seems a little excessive. A little? Maybe I am thinking outside the box here. <laughs> How dare. But 
They found that the crew attempted to recover from the dive when they realized that they were descending too rapidly. Oh, huh. Not really. (laughs) The G-forces in the ground appearing very quickly. Wasn't enough? The boo. They found that the airplane impacted the ground at a speed of approximately 398 knots in a wings level attitude and at between 20 and 40 degree nose down pitch attitude due to the high descent rate and late recovery attempt. So they were at wings level, not pitch level. I apologize for my earlier statement. They weren't left or right. They were wings level, but 20 to 40 degrees. Downward. Down. Well, 20 to 40 degrees impact angle. What what did it just say their pitch was? It says 20 to 40 degrees nose pitch down. Oh, okay. Instructions unclear. Yep. So anyways, that's a whole thing. They found that the simulator flight test attempts to duplicate the radar recorded altitude and flight path profile, including the transition from rapid climb to very rapid descent. The cause in the GPWS alerts recorded on the CVR and information derived from witness reports indicated that the airplane could not duplicate the accident profile with runaway nose-down stabilizer trim or with the elevator out of control. Therefore, the accident flight path profile appears to have been the result of deliberate flight control inputs. Literally, they put themselves into the dive. That's the only way they could replicate it. No fault on the side of the aircraft could replicate the same problem. Not going down that fast. Nope. Which is why they had Boeing's help. So... Well, or not going down fast enough. If an elevator had jammed, they would have gone much faster and much steeper. hmm Yeah. Two more. The fact that the investigative team doesn't exclude the possibility of negative G-stall resulting from sudden attitude change, which aggravated the pitch over. There's no way to know. There is no way to really know about that one. And that... But it still is at the fault of the crew. Yes. Like, it doesn't change that. Correct. And the last one's interesting. They found that the investigative team doesn't exclude the possibility of some partial malfunction on the airplane. If there was some, but that was not the cause of the accident. So the whole thing with that last point is they're saying there could be something wrong. A knob could have not been turning. Right. Something could have been wrong with the airplane. We don't know. And there's no way to know. It's in pieces and we don't have a flight data. It literally disintegrated on impact. But... It probably wasn't the cause. (laughs) The probable cause, read verbatim. The joint investigative team determines that the probable cause of the Korean Air Flight KE-6316 accident was the flight crew's loss of altitude situational awareness, resulting from altitude clearance wrongly relayed by the first officer and the crew's overreaction with abrupt flight control input. I like how short and succinct that one was, actually. Me too. pretty straightforward. Actually, everything about this report was pretty well done, even though it was short. Like, they were really just to the point. They were like, considering reports from, like, Taiwan, where it's, I like, know, 800 I pages. Say, I'm <laughs> like, considering we've had Chinese reports that are not that short. Well, right. Taiwanese. Taiwanese reports. China, quote-unquote. Yes. Those reports are, like, 700 pages and have way too much information. I can only imagine what they would have done with this accident. Oh, my God. China, on the other hand, actually, this was in really good English. So they obviously had somebody who was like... Yeah, there was a couple of questions. Sure, there was a couple why of you times. No turn? <laughs> why well, you turn? I mean, there were... I realized that was like the crew's betting. Yeah, yeah. But, but there were a couple of... Sure, there was a couple of times, but honestly, like, out of all what those... What did you say? Out of all those findings that I just read, like it was in, for the most part, like really good English. Like somebody obviously Turns knew. out that happens when the NTSB helps. Good English. Well, that and they probably had somebody on the team who actually just spoke English. Like it could be a Chinese investigator, but probably just spoke English. Anyways... Let's do some recommendations. Note, this conclusion is only the most probable cause which can't be used as lawsuit. Yep. How's that for good English? Yes, that's a Yeah, thing. you can't, although the people who caused the accident died, but... Yeah. You I mean, can't sue the airline. Can't sue right. the airline. Not although, with this as a basis. But they did, in the recommendations, have a lot to say to Korean Airlines. Maybe, I don't know, do more than just a training video? Just a thought. It has a lot to do with CRM, usually. 
They recommend Korean Air that they shall train its pilots to be familiar with converting meters to feet and provide training for proper cockpit discipline in air traffic control environments using meters for altitude clearances. They did not do that. We'll talk about it in a minute. There's a different recommendation that was implemented that changed this. <laughs> you can imagine what it is. They recommended that Korean Air shall enforce its pilot crew resource management training require its pilots to adhere strictly to established procedures, including the conduct of briefings, cockpit crew preparation, and organization prior to flight, and prohibit its pilot crews from beginning a flight until all necessary preparations are complete and the flight crew is in agreement on how the flight will be conducted. Pretty straightforward. Crew resource management. The rest of the world has pretty much already got this figured out. This is why I said later on, like at the beginning, I said this was a very hot time for Korean Airlines. This accident fit right into the period of time where they had a series of accidents and they were known to be an unsafe airline because they weren't doing a lot of the things the ICAO recommended. They didn't have crew resource management. You might recall the accident in Guam. Ah, with the DME. Yes. Yes. You might recall. It's a Mirandisode. Fun fact. Yes. I covered it. I'm bringing up all the Mirandisodes today. If that's not a sign, I don't know what is. Right. They recommend the Korean Air shall reinforce the pilot flight techniques and psychological training to improve the pilot's competence in dealing with abnormal conditions during flight, i.e. confusion. So this one's pretty straightforward, but I feel like this one was kind of unnecessary because I think they should have tied it in with crew resource management, really, because it's just they're talking about the psychology. I think they're specifically referring to the effects of spatial disorientation. And I agree with that. That in and of itself... That is more than just crew resource management. It is more than crew resource though. management, but that is a pretty just fundamental part of training, usually. I think they should have specifically used the phrase spatial disorientation. I agree. They used it in the probable cause to an extent. Yes, they did. So I feel like they should have used that instead of using technical mumbo-jumbo. Yep. Two more of these. They recommend that the flight data recorder manufacturers should enhance the crashworthiness of the flight data recorder so that they can survive in the accident. This has been done. Yes, this has been done, for one. And two, this was a really high impact. But we had data from, like, Swiss Air 111, which yep. is also an MD-11. So, I don't know. That's a whole thing. And the last but absolutely most important recommendation, and the one that really did change things, and one that ultimately would have kept all of this confusion from being a thing, they recommend that since the air traffic control altitude assignment is issued in different measuring units in different nations, it is suggested that the international aviation community strengthen the cooperation and take effective measures to avoid the crew's confusion of the different measuring units of the ATC clearance and step up to use the same altitude measuring unit in the ATC assignment. And then there's North Korea. Right. But all of that to say that eventually Russia and China both decided to agree with the ICAO and just switch to fate. Well, I feel like they also fly... I mean, they don't fly much mm -hmm. to places that use feet but they do well, they do a lot they do a lot well yeah. now they do now and at the time but... still quite a bit the big problem russia doesn't much right the, well right now yeah <laughs> Not right now the big problem that russia and china both had during the 90s and prior was that most of the aircraft they had were soviet built both yes. nations and they were, were mostly soviet built aircraft which meters. were in meters <laughs> oh for... which is why this was still a problem because soviet aircraft were all built in meters because the soviets had to be different so they once... couldn't use feet so during the 90s though there was a really big shift in western aircraft being used in russia and in china and so suddenly there was an enormous problem and then suddenly they 
realized, yes, we have to agree. We're going to switch. They're like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, hold up. (laughs) Because it's also a much more accurate way of giving altitude. It's also a much more accurate way of spacing aircraft. Just saying. The the one time the United States was able to impose imperial units on the rest of the world. (laughs) (laughs) It started with the British, actually, but yes. It's because the British used both. Yes. Yeah, but we got Boeing. Yes, we do. I just like how, like, everyone's like, America uses Imperial. I'm like, we're not the only ones who use Imperial. We are not. There's There are places that are weirder that use both, and you're like, are you really, kidding me? Honestly, the Pick UK. Pick one. The UK. Pick what one. in the world is that? What are you guys doing over there? No offense, <laughs> but why do you guys use, like, miles, but also, like, pints? <laughs> Those those are both imperial. Or sorry, not pints. Uh, 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 liters. Liters. Yes. Sorry, liters. Why so do you, you use, use miles per hour, but you do liters of gas. Yes, liters of gas, but miles per hour. But you also do Celsius. Celsius, but you also do like stop it. You, <laughs> they have a whole heating unit. Yeah. They have British thermal units. I do not. No, I'm sure they do. That's because they have to be. They have to be special. <laughs> But they're not the only one. There's also other countries that do this, and I think it's the weirdest thing. Like, I think Canada uses both. Kind of. They're mostly metric, actually. They use Celsius. They use kilometers. Which 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 countries use Imperial? I think Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't remember if it's Sri Lanka. There's another there's little nation. There's like three that does. countries. It's us, Liberia, and Myanmar. Okay, yeah, that's right, Myanmar. That's what I was thinking of. That's, that's it. That's right. That's right. And then UK is a weird hybrid baby, yeah. <laughs> which is weird because we're actually their baby. Anyway, yeah. we are degrading quickly. Is that All it? of this to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it. All of this to say that the world just operates in feet, sans North Korea. That doesn't matter. <laughs> so there you go. This isn't really a problem. Yep. So that was Korean cargo, air cargo flight. I don't remember. 6316. Yep. There you go. Moral of the story. Figure out what unions you're using. That's, that's that's good for science <laughs> class and also flying airplanes. Yes. Although in flying airplanes, we use Imperial in almost everything, except we also use nautical miles, which is a whole different thing. And why do we do that instead of statute miles? That's Because first we had boats. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we just decided to steal it from boats. And actually, statistically, the whole reason that we use nautical miles is because the world maps were designed in nautical miles mm-hmm. and so it's much easier to do things in nautical miles that's because than it is the people who miles. made the world map used boats right just saying okay okay so first listener question we have is from andrew yep andrew the trucker yep who starts with Turbo trucker so there i was can y'all there you were oh wait till the end <laughs> some of these oh good so there I was, listening to my favorite podcast, and one of you guys wow. mentioned that A, there's a story of a mid-air collision between what sounded like a larger jet and a small plane. B, the small plane had a parachute. C, nobody died. D, it's local to you? <laughs> so my question is, why is this only coming up now? We've talked about it. Yes, I, we, we talked about it right after it happened. Yeah, I, want, I want that episode. That one. Now, please. That might take some work. I don't think there's a report on it yet yet. still. Yeah, so. We'd have to wait till the report. It happened in May of 2021, so. It should be soon-ish. Though it is a mid-air collision. Yes. I I would grant them a year leeway. I feel like this was To be fair, we kind of figured it out from the freaking Vasa Aviation from Vasa Aviation. Yeah. Yeah, Vasa Aviation. Vasa Aviation. They 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 are they had all of the resources. They had I know. All you need was the air traffic control. And they had everybody was alive (laughs) and well. (laughs) 
after the accident. And I'm pretty sure they could have recovered something in terms of data from the Cirrus. Most definitely. Yeah. Absolutely they could. And for all I know... It floated to the ground. Right. Uh, Most likely the Londar did not have any kind of (laughs) recorder because that thing is... This was not equipped with, nor was it required to be equipped equipped with. We're lovely people here. Anyway, he closes with P.S. Hey, Spock. Hey, David. What's up, guys? (laughs) I told you. I was like, wait. At the end, he shouts everybody out. Yeah. He shouted everybody out. Next. Okay. The next one is also from him. Andrew. Thanks, Trevor the, Trevor the Trucker. So there I was. Again. So there he was. Again. <laughs> this question only kind of pertains to episode 167, more along the lines of small planes, but one of the stories had one of the places doing multiple takeoff and landings, and I had a question about that. Okay. A few months back, I brought my daughter to Pearson Education Center. It's a free aviation museum activity center in Vancouver, Washington. Uh-huh. Shout out to all the volunteers there. They do an amazing job. The cool part is it's on Pearson Field, which is a small airfield so you can watch smaller planes take off and land and it's close enough to PDX that you can also see larger jets coming and going. True. I don't know if this has anything to do with this, but it was the first nice day in a few weeks. Well, my daughter wanted to watch the planes taking off, so we found a spot to watch the runway, as you do. Yep, as you do. Three or four prop planes take off and then one lands, then it's pretty steady takeoff, landing, takeoff, landing. The thing we started noticing is it was the same five-ish planes, all taking off, circling, landing, taxi, take off again. So my question is, why do they do this? Is it some certification thing? Testing? Best practice? Um, it just fantastic seems, question. It just seemed odd to me that they were all doing the same thing and not really going anywhere. I really like this it's question. It's touch and goes. They're this practicing is, landings and takeoffs. But this is more than touch and goes because he said they're taxiing back and taking off again. This is called full stop taxi back. This is a practice maneuver, and this is primarily used to practice approaches as well as coming to a full stop. This is... Because in a touch and go, it's very easy to just say, okay, we touched, flaps up, full throttle, we're going around. Yeah. Versus actually coming to a full stop, having to come back. There's also other practical reasons to do this to test different things. But primarily, it's a function of, yes, practice. And getting hours and getting landings. Yep. Because ultimately, the most taxing, not taxing, taxing part of a flight is takeoff and landing, the critical phases of flight. And those are the phases of flight where there are the most accidents. These are the phases of flight that you want to practice the most. So doing touch and goes or Mm -hmm. touch full stop and go are the best ways to get that practice in. You don't need to practice cruise flight. I guarantee it. Right. You can practice navigation. Sure. But also full stop taxi backs are one of the only ways usually that most larger aircraft can do touch and goes. Touch and goes. They can't usually do an actual they can't touch rev, and go, per They can't se. rev up enough to right. get out. Yeah. I mean, it's not to say you couldn't, I guess. But, but it, if you're on a small field difficult. like that, yeah. It is very difficult. Okay. Also, I, I enjoy your little tidbit about Pearson Field, because I've never actually been to Pearson Field. I know exactly where it is, though, because my dad lives in Portland. And I always thought it was really strange that Pearson Field exists. Why? <laughs> Allow me to show you on a map. Okay. Okay. Here's Pearson Field. Ready? There's oh, PDX. Oh. Well, it might have been like an old Air Force base or something. Pearson Field's been around for a long time, a lot longer than PDX. But the problem I have with this one in specific, and that a lot of people think is really interesting, the fact that this one still exists, is that it's not just so close to PDX, but it is right across the river from the runway, yes. like the direction of the runway. Yes. It would be one thing like- What does their Bravo look like? It's not a Bravo. That's the whole thing. Anyways, <laughs> I know. I'll show you that in a minute. But I still think that's a really interesting little airport because it is so close 
and yet it still gets away with it because here in Denver we have an airport that is very close to Denver oh, International yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except that it's not in the approach path of any of the runways. No. That's true. Because it's in the crooks between the 90 yeah, degrees. There's, there's a 90, the 90 degree angle you're not allowed to go past. Right, because <laughs> there's a north there's the north to sound runways and the east to west runways in Denver and this one is to the southeast of Denver if you want to know what that so it's is, it's Air and Spaceport. Colorado yeah, it's Colorado Air and Spaceport. Yeah. yeah, formerly known as Front Range. Right, Front Range Airport. It is where Brendan got his everything. Meanwhile, Pearson Field could not be more in line with the runways at PDX. Well, that being <laughs> also, said, if it's a small airport, there can be a lot of people that can take off small small planes that can take off out of Pearson that can't take off out of PDX. Well, of course. But Troutdale even has this problem that it's so close to PDX, and it's also pretty much in line with the runways. It is. That it is very strict even at Troutdale, which is in the opposite direction, that, I mean, usually when you get takeoff instructions, it is very strict about your altitude because you have to be very conscious of, you know. They're airliners? Airspace? (laughs) I think it is Charlie. Let me look. On that note, I didn't realize you live so close to Nick's dad. We should come visit you. Yeah. We're... In the area sometimes. About once a year. My dad works at PDX, so. That's a thing! <laughs> if y'all didn't figure that out. Going on. We know he works for an undisclosed airline. Yeah, it's a Charlie. Okay. No, the the funniest thing about going to visit Al. Oh, Lord. Look, there's Pearson Field. <laughs> it has its own tiny, it has its own little tiny Cut out. out. You can go up to 1,100 feet. That's pretty good, That's actually. actually pretty good. They do that because typically pattern altitude is 1,000. Yeah. So you can imagine, though, you only you have- You can do pattern. You can do pattern work at Pearson, but you can only do it, looks like, probably right traffic. Left traffic would probably be too tight. Oh, God. Or, well, I mean, I guess I'm thinking on runway 26 anyways. Zero eight would be left traffic, not right, because it's just too close to the airspace. But also- 1,100 feet, usually That's pattern, not a lot. pattern altitude is 1,000 above airfield level. So that means you have 100 feet of to give. To bust through the Charlie. You only have 100 feet of give. Anything above that. And I'm sure it's strict because it's that stupid close to the airport. Maybe they have a little bit lower of a pattern work level. No. Oh, okay. Probably not because it's an FAA requirement. Oh, usually. okay. Cool. One of the coolest things about going to visit Al at PDX is you get off the plane. And normally when you go see family, you have to like go into the terminal, see them there. No, he's at the plane. And when I say at the plane, he's not like at your gate. He is. You on the jet bridge. On the jet bridge. (laughs) You walk off the plane and Al is standing right there in his safety. Yeah, he's done that quite a bit. He does that to us like every time we go over there. Yes. It's because he can. Yep. He has the authorization. He has the authority. Well, he's also usually working when we get in. (laughs) He also usually has the car keys. So. Well, yes. (laughs) But he has the authority. The authority. To be able yeah. to do such things. Yes. Okay, next question. I Last question. I that in Denver. This is from David! David! Oh, he just submitted this today. Yes, he did. Excellent. This is about Spaceship 2 thing. Ooh. Yeah, the Powered Flight 4. Yes, Powered Flight 4. Which came out today. I'm sure he knows a lot more about this than I do, to be honest, because I don't do enough research on spaceship thingies. On spaceship thingies? <laughs> I'm skipping part of the story. I told you. So if they have passengers aboard and there is an incident, how do the passengers egress and live through it? I don't know. Ask Jeff Bezos. <laughs> there's, a, there's a couple things to that. One, usually they don't. <laughs> if you've learned anything about space travel, once you've left the ground, usually if anything's going to happen, you're screwed. It is SOL at that point. There because is like- there is no amount of getting out of there at high rates of speed and altitude. That will save you. There was a, a incident that happened with NASA. This isn't 
like with a private space thing mm-hmm. um, with Discovery. Was it Discovery? Maybe. Where part of the ship like came off when they lifted off the platform and they Probably. knew it damaged the hull. Mm-hmm. And so when they reentered, they knew they were going to blow up. So I don't remember what it was called. I don't remember, I don't remember the name of the ship. It wasn't, it wasn't Challenger. About, they yes. made it out to space, figured out that the hull was damaged and was like, well, like mm-hmm. we, we can't reenter. I mean, this is very similar to, I mean, there's a lot of things that have been like that throughout the years, to be honest. I mean, Apollo 13 had similar issues. Yeah. Let me see. I think it was Discovery, but okay, sorry. Continue. But did it actually have a disaster? Yes. Columbia. Like it, Oh, Columbia. it was the Columbia. You're yeah, right. yeah, yeah. I was going to say, the only other one I know of is the Columbia. So Yeah, that's the one I'm so, talking about. There's more he talks about Okay. that would have answered your question. Anyway, this is a persistent issue regarding high-altitude, high-speed flight. Challenger, yes. Columbia, no way to get out of a failing vehicle and survive. Parachutes would not matter if exiting above most of the atmosphere without an actual pressure suit and a lot of automatic systems to stabilize the person right. and open the parachute and such. In 1955, a test pilot named George Smith... Ejected from a F-100 Super Sabre at 6,500 feet going Mach 1.5, over 700 miles per hour. I imagine it's 65,000 feet. Nope, 6,500 is what he wrote. Yeah, probably 65, but maybe, maybe 6,500. Over 700 miles per hour in regular pilot garb and barely survived. In 1956, Air Force Captain Mel Apt went Mach 3 in the X-2, a rocket-propelled aircraft to set a record. The X-2 had an egress system in which the entire nose section would separate from the rest of the vehicle. Parachute would deploy and land. It did not work in real life. When the X-2 went Mach 3, a turn before deceleration caused a loss of control. Apt started the separation sequence, but for whatever reason, after the nose section separated, the main parachute did not deploy and he died when it impacted. So this issue has been around for a long, long time. The things that have not changed are the physics of high-speed, high-altitude flight, the weight penalties regarding egress systems, and how to get more than one person out of a vehicle in time and have them survive the event. Finally, the question... How do these issues get resolved to make even a suborbital hop survivable if there's an incident? Loves and kisses, David. <laughs> I, okay, so I actually, I, I listened to the episode today, by the way, okay. we're, we're recording the day that that episode comes out. Yeah. And I was thinking about this while I was listening to it. Like, we were talking about how the FAA needs to do some regulations, right? Yeah. On, on space travel. My whole question, and we don't know the answer to this because there's no regulations, right? But like how to make it safe for commercial flight. Like there has to be some sort of regulations regarding safety and safety of of passengers and stuff. And if something were to happen, like if you catch fire on reentry or, you know, something that happened with the power flight four that we were talking about, some sort of structural Mm -hmm. thing happens, like how do you make sure the passengers get out safely well and to draw a direct parallel to aviation we don't have a way for that in commercial aviation right usually well we have like things like brace positions and stuff that can help people like if you know it's coming right yeah Yeah, that's assuming the vessel stays intact yes (laughs) like you don't have an eject button for the passengers no no so i'm i don't think that the faa would ever require it but i'm talking about like i like if we have a water landing there's ways to stay safe, right? There's, if we have a, if you have a crash landing and it's not too high velocity, there's a way to be less injured, not to say you'll not be injured, but like with space travel, that's even more, it's like more dramatic, right? Because you're going way more altitude. Right. Right. So So my point being is like, how would you put safety regulations on something like that when we don't know? Right. The, the only, so this is of course an eternally, difficult question to answer because this is a very difficult task needless to say obviously over the years basically again as soon as you leave the ground you're 
very literally rocketing very quickly to very high altitudes. And how in the world are you supposed to survive something like that should something go wrong? Like what happens if you get to space and then your oxygen depletes or there's something wrong with the pressurization system or whatever? Like right. Apollo 13. Well, Anyways. Apollo 13 tried to go all the way up to the moon, right? Like, well, they, not- went, they went up, they slung around the moon, but they had a depressurization issue. They had a hole in the fuselage. Like, and they were doing all this in space. Like, they had right. to figure out how to fix this in space. Yeah. <laughs> and they had no way to, like, propel I, themselves. Well, there and was- I realized, like, this, we, we talked about in the episode, sorry, I didn't mean to, like, interrupt you, but no. we were talking about this in the episode where it's just, like, a short stint right. in space, and then you come back down. Right. But and yeah, in these commercial like how space do you instances. how do you make it so that that's safe? So the only way, and it's basically what they've already done. If you if you think about it, every single one of these systems that they've developed is essentially a pod system in some way, shape, or form, where there is a pod that actually goes to space, and the rest of the machine does not. Yes, which is where you end up having to sacrifice the weight. So. In these pod systems, basically, is they design the pod to be able to withstand instances where they're going to end up hitting the ground, but they have to find ways to decelerate them quickly so that when they do impact the ground, much like an airliner, then you can brace and expect to be able to survive. So that's why they've really come up with these pod systems rather than trying to actually slow down a whole massive machine. The problem is on the way up. (laughs) Usually. If something goes wrong on the way up, say an explosion or something, there's not much you can do. Well, my question is, like, let's say they get to space. Space. We're in space. We're final, in space. The, the final, final frontier. frontier. All right. right. And something happens and yep. there's a pressurization issue. Yep. So they don't have oxygen. Mm-hmm. What happens? Basically, I, I mean, you could also supplementals. That would be my my guess. Does, yeah. does everyone get a spacesuit? Like, yeah, or supplemental or oxygen, oxygen in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah of course. Which... The FAA does regulate on small aircraft, on small depressurized aircraft, if you are going a certain... Yeah, if you go above certain altitudes, there's a whole lot of regulations to this. I I could get into that, but it's very complicated. Above a certain altitude... But you have to have oxygen on board. It has to be available above a certain altitude. Passengers have to have it. Above a certain altitude, everybody has to have it. (laughs) Um, When Nick worked at the Cirrus Training Center, there were aircraft that were not Cirrus, because Cirrus are pressurized, as far as Mm -hmm. I'm aware. No. Oh. Not anymore. Oh. I take it back. No, I put oxygen in all of them. So he had to know... If you're going this high, do you need this much oxygen? Blah, 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 blah. Those oxygen tanks are scary. Yeah. Well, if they really explode. It, yep. Yep. I covered a Miranda episode on that. <laughs> End of airplane. Hey. <laughs> Fortunately, that has never happened because they have fail safes. So there's never been an instance, at least as far as I know. There was one point where you were putting oxygen in an airplane. You're like, if this explodes and you like describe the devastating consequences, I'm like, my dude, I'm standing right here. Yeah. <laughs> if this explodes, yeah, yeah, it's like you're super going dangerous. to die. <laughs> Thank you so enough, much. There's enough fail safes and all these. And this was like the first year we were together. I'm like, maybe yeah. don't start our date night like that. We had so many <laughs> date nights where he was just working. I'm like, don't threaten my life like that. Yeah, I know. But the thing is, is, all commercial aircraft, most private aircraft, I'm talking like twin engine, anything, turbine, jet, anything like that, have built-in oxygen tanks some way, shape, or form. And those built-in oxygen tanks have to be serviced just like that. And there's not, there's really no instances of these oxygen tanks just destroying an aircraft in flight. Because <laughs> there's enough fail-safes on these things, and there's a lot of regulation around them. No, they I mean the tanks that, that you use to refill yeah, them. Yeah, of course, those. But those also have fail-safes. I mean, those are designed by companies that specialize in that kind of thing. So I trust it. Okay. Those are people who specialize in just that. But I mean, like, that's something that they could do. Right. And I know... That there's the question of weight and sacrificing weight for safety systems, but I mean, it's oxygen. And you have to do it. I mean, there's just, there's certain things you have to do and they have to regulate that. So these are things they have to account for when they have to account for how do we get it into space. 
safely. efficiently, yeah, safely, and then bring them back safely. And they could also have oxygen plan for eventualities generators, right? So. Which is kind of what they do in like your pull down mask, yeah, yeah, that's generator. We've talked about it. That is also a fire hazard. So I don't it know is. which they would prefer, right? So all this to say, there's no right answer yet. Nope. <laughs> Still, there's I, not enough. Like this, like the program that that Virgin Galactic has just mm-hmm. launched. I guess two years ago now, because we're in 2023, but in t- 2021. Yeah. And like Jeff Bezos went up, what, 2021, right? Like, yeah, also, that was, yes. Yeah. In, yeah. In his little. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that was not. You said shit. it. That was not Virgin Galactic. <laughs> no, that, that, was not, that was that Bezos. Was, yeah, that was. Um, no, that was. Blue uh, Origin. No, that wasn't Bezos. It was. It was. It was. It was, was it Bezos? It was Bezos. Okay. That was Blue Origin. I thought that SpaceX was SpaceX. Musk. Is, no, that's Elon SpaceX. Musk. Oh, Musk okay. is SpaceX. SpaceX primarily does satellites and other Richard things. Branson is Virgin Galactic. Right. Who also owns Virgin Airlines. He, Richard Branson, started this venture. Sir Richard Yeah, Branson. Sir Richard Branson. Started this venture. <laughs> he started this venture before the rest of them, which is a bit why they had to speed things up. <laughs> Because all of a sudden, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk both had manned commercial spaceflight vehicles in just a couple of years. Yeah. Because they had a lot of money and resources to spend on it. Look at all these billionaires launching. Meanwhile, and to be fair... Can the three of you launch yourselves into space and never come back? (laughs) The one thing I I can appreciate, though, about Virgin Galactic over the other two is that Sir Richard Branson really put a lot of thought into all of the peripherals that went with this long before they actually did a commercial space flight. So we talk about that accident, that incident, and that one really happened... A lot of years ago, yes. All things considered, mm-hmm. how some of these things Almost happened ten so years fast before the actual official flight right happened because yeah. he'd been working on this for decades, yeah. And he was planning and building spaceports, like actual places for these to take off and land, yeah. That have like nice amenities and things. Like he built all the peripherals to go with this as an experience before he ever and he did all the testing and everything. Do you anticipate one day this. having a Virgin Galactic flight take off out of Colorado Air and Spaceport? Dear God, no. <laughs> no no that well, is what a joke it's... that is well and the only reason that it was named an Aaron's spaceport quote-unquote spaceport they they named those partially for commercial space flight but actually it was primarily because of the space force thing yeah so it was intended as okay if we're gonna have the space force we need to designate a certain number of air you know basically Places. ports yeah. airports within on a grid basically across the country that are designated in order to take to be spaceports. Yes, these things. Which, by the way, I will say this: Space Force is complete bunk. I'm sorry. Yes, but the, also we do sense. also now have Space Force bases. Yes, we do. I hate that. It is no longer Buckley Air Force Base. It is Buckley Space Force Base. Right, and the whole thing with the Colorado Air and Spaceport is they really were trying to attract like commercial space things to go on there, which is why they changed the name. But theoretically, they they didn't have to change the name. They just did that as like a ploy. As like, we want your business. <laughs> Look, we're a spaceport. We're a spaceport. <laughs> Just don't take off into the Bravo of DIA. Yeah, spaceport. <laughs> Good God. Oh, God. I think that's everything. That's I think it. that's it. Yeah. Managed so. to extend that one on the back half there. <laughs> so uh, do the thing, like do do the Patreon thing. Like check out the Patreon. There's check out the lot, merch. There's a lot of cool stuff. Merch. Newsletter. Lot, yes, Newsletter. It came out, comes out tomorrow from when yes. we're editing this. So. Yes. Ducks. Recording this? Recording, recording this. Not this, editing yes. this. We're not editing. I wish we could edit while we record. That would be so much easier. That'd oh, my so God. Nice. Paige, you'd be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> ducks. Ducks. Get ducks. 
Okay. Set up time. Anyways. Thank you so much for listening. We Thanks. Hope, we hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you next time, next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.